my business is so strong because of bringing people to the town. You know, the rents are so good because we have such a big workforce. The rents are, you know, very high. So that brings investors to the town. I'm talking with Jay Shepherdson in the upper hunter town of Musselbrook, about two hours northwest of Newcastle. He's been a realtor here for decades and we're in his office on the town's main street. So, you know, that's all leads back to the coal mining industry and the power stations and the railway infrastructure, which are all part of, part of that coal mining industry. When White Man first laid eyes on what is now Newcastle, more than two centuries ago, the first thing he noticed was rich seams of black marking the area's towering yellow and pink sandstone headlands. Coal. Since then, we've cast further and further out into the Hunter Valley in search of the stuff. Whole communities have risen up out of the dark soil, established on lucrative and consistent mining money, which now supports around 14,000 jobs in the region, many of them extremely well paid. But experts say the days of coal as a driver of the region's economy are numbered. I think our business would certainly, and Musselbrook in general, would certainly struggle, to, certainly to start with, you know, when they transition to whatever new industries, you know, down the track that they think coal mining might replace, well, we don't know. But at the moment, if coal mining pulled out of Musselbrook, which it won't happen, but if it did, then yes, the town would be, you know, it would be a, a big, big problem. Despite increasingly desperate warnings to government at all levels that they must act to save towns like Musselbrook, Jay isn't worried. I personally don't believe it will happen. You know, yes, Liddell will close in the in the foreseeable future and they may replace it with something else. But at this point in time, we don't have any other industries that can, we don't have nuclear power, we don't have any, you know, solar and wind aren't enough to generate the power that we supply from the coal. So, you know, I don't think it's going to happen in my lifetime, but it may. But yes, if it did happen, then yes, Musselbrook would certainly need other industries to come here with the backing of government. I'm Ethan Hamilton, a reporter for the Newcastle Herald. And this week for Voice of Real Australia, I've explored the diversity of opinion around energy generation in the Hunter. From Musselbrook locals whose lives are deeply connected to the mining industry, to progressive organisations looking at a future outside coal. The region has stared down big changes in the past. BHP used to have a steelworks in Newcastle, which, at its peak in the late 60s, consistently employed over 10,000 people. With thousands of workers still on site, BHP closed in the 90s, scarring the city for a decade. The Hunter is looking to avoid a repeat of this economic loss, as the closure of three large coal-fired power stations in the region puts secure jobs at risk. I think if mining wasn't here, I don't think Muswell would, would be here in reality. I mean, yeah, I know we have horses and, and all those sorts of things. There's always that sort of stuff, but I think mining creates the employment, the bulk of the employment in, in the area. Wayne Williams is a friendly bloke in his late 50s, with a broad smile and an easy laugh. He's lived in the area most of his life, and like a lot of people around here, he has a long history in the mining industry. At the moment, I'm a, a shot fire at Mangula Coal. I've been started in the industry about 1986. Yeah, worked for quite a few different mining companies, BHP at the start in 86, and I went to Drayton Coal, and I went to Mount Arthur Coal, and um, in 2018, I went to Mangula. So I've got about 36 years in the industry. Okay, and all around Musselbrook? Always around Musselbrook, yeah. Yeah, I've been in Musselbrook for um, 55 years okay. out of 59. I meet Wayne at the Royal Hotel in Musselbrook. While the Royal looks like any other country pub from the outside, 
Recent renovations have given the interior a new lease on life, with the old cellar opened up as a boutique dining experience. The publican introduced me to Wayne as we walked through the main bar. We sat down to talk about the future of mining, and I became one of many to have had this same conversation in this very sport. Just like Jay, Wayne reckons mining is going to be around for a long time. In the near future, some companies like VHP seem to think that they're going to get out, and maybe they will, but there'll still be other companies willing to take the chance and the resources and, and use them. Well, if we don't have anything else really to take that baseload, you know, you, you, you might put hundreds of solar panels up, on, yeah, or wind farms even, but um, yeah, you can't see it going away, yeah. There's a big debate over what Wayne just said. On the one hand, coal still has a bit of life left in it. China has over a thousand operational coal-fired power stations, and the Australian government has forecast exports to Southeast Asia and India to grow over the next two years. But there's also the fact that while mining is as widespread in the Hunter as ever, and coal prices are at record highs, technology has reduced the number of workers that are needed. Wayne's conscious of this, but doesn't know what will replace the jobs lost. Yeah, or even, um, you know, mining companies now into automation. Yeah. Automated trucks, automated this, automated that. Um, so do you think jobs will be an issue if the mining... Definitely, yeah, the mining definitely. Oh, I would hate to think how many mining employees here. Oh, yeah. no, not even here, say Muswell, Scone, Aberdeen, even Singleton, uh, Fairfield, yeah. I, I just don't think there would be the work for everyone to do, unless we turn it into a big um, retirement village. We have, we have a lot of voids, I suppose, if we could take all the rubbish from Sydney. and yeah. it's still not going to... Yeah, just bring it up here and put it in our, in our final voids. But yeah. I, don't know, I don't know. Is that not really a tourist attraction? <laughs> <laughs> what comes next is a vexed question when people have difficulty accepting things are set to change. The coal mining industry could have decades of life left in it for the hunter. And on purely economic grounds, that would seem to be the case. But it's not a question of pure economics anymore. This is highly politicised. There's every possibility changes in government policy and action from the private sector could kill the industry a lot sooner than expected. Over the last few years, as more and more um, you know, renewables have come around and people are starting to see that impact and they're hearing about the different types of technology out there, different things like batteries and other things like that, you can see a shift in the employees to actually starting to go and say, actually, you know what, this is going to happen. Len McLaughlin works for AGL. He's the general manager of both the Liddell and Bayswater power stations. Located about a 15-minute drive southeast of Musselbrook, the stations represent about 8% of generation in the national electricity market. Liddell is scheduled to begin a year-long decommissioning process in April this year, with Bayswater following suit no later than 2033. Well, what's next? Um, so for those who are younger, they'll obviously know that they've got a job at Bayswater, but there's a very keen interest and a, a momentum switch to, okay, well, what are the jobs of the future? Because they also recognize with Bayswater, there's a, a, a finite life as well. So that's, you can see that switch from, it can't happen to, okay, what's next? So it's definitely occurring. AGL is moving away from coal-fired energy generation and exploring renewable options, either under its current ownership or as a new look AGL. A consortium which includes Aussie tech billionaire Mike Cannon-Brooks is looking to buy AGL, with plans to transform the company into a green energy provider. 
As part of their Hunter Energy Park concept, AGL already intends to establish a range of green industries such as solar, hydrogen, and battery technologies on the Liddell and Bayswater sites. I think that um, once we start getting into some of those new types of plants, even though the amount of employees per plant is less, we'll be able to then shift our employees into those. And, you know, I would expect that, um, I would hope that we would see, you know, 20, 30% of our employees actually be able to go and, and run those plants and also participate in any other renewable investment that's taking place in the valley. And, you know, see that continue to grow over the next 20 years would be fantastic. As well as the AGL closures, Origin Energy announced intentions to close New South Wales' largest coal-fired power station, Araring, which sits on the edge of Lake Macquarie, just south of Newcastle, by 2025, seven years ahead of schedule. Without local demand for coal as a source of energy, coal mining inevitably decreases. The region might keep exporting for a few decades, and certainly the majority of what's pulled out of the Hunter at the moment is shipped out even now. But these closures are part of an international move away from coal power, not just a domestic one. So the question is whether we push on with coal until there's no more market, or we use this time to prepare the region for the future. Big energy companies like Origin and AGL may see the writing on the wall, and they have started to transition their operations, but there's nothing in the way of a coherent, centralised plan for the region to make sure people like Jane Wayne aren't left behind, and communities like Musselbrook aren't destroyed. Jay Shepherdson again. They, they're definitely forgotten, you know, all the greenies and or whatever who were talking about things, they don't think about the local people, you know, they may be in Sydney, you know, and carry on about all the, the climate change and the coal mining doing this and coal mining doing that, but they don't think about the local people who, you know, and a young bloke who gets a job in the mines at 18, my son's a perfect example, both my sons, they're both miners, they both got jobs in the mines at 18, they've worked their way, my oldest son is 26 now, you know, he's worked his way up and he's got a nice little farm now. And my youngest son, he's just in the process of buying a house, you know, and, and doing it up and stuff. So those people are, in the, are definitely forgotten in the conversation. They just, they look at the big picture, but they don't come down and look at the, at the community picture. Young people in coal mining are the ones who will be there when the change comes. They're the future that experts say we need to plan for. My name is Nathan Clements. I'm 26. And I'm an electrical fitter working in the mining industry. Yeah. And where do you work? I work at Komatsu in Hunter Valley. And how long have you been doing that for? Uh, seven years I've been there for, including yeah. my apprenticeship. Okay. And you're studying as well? I'm studying part-time at uh, University of Newcastle, studying commerce. With a deep family connection to coal mining, Nathan Clement's current job is directly linked to the industry. He's like a lot of people in that regard. I guess I just sort of question my place in it all. I suppose... Off the top of my head, I think it's about 10% of coal that is mined in Australia is actually consumed here. So there's still going to be quite a considerable export market. But I guess this is kind of a, a sign of the times, I suppose, just because there's still going to be an export market. I guess if it's happening here, coal mines closing down, I can only imagine abroad some of our customers have the same uh, realities. Nathan has youth on his side when it comes to future education and employment, which is why he's at Newcastle Uni studying commerce. But he says this isn't a path available to a lot of his colleagues. They're a bit older than me, so study's not quite a viable option. But I get, it's a bit of a mixed bag. You've got some people that are fully agree, a lot of neutral, just go where the wind goes, and still some 
definitive, uh, I wouldn't say pro coal, but can't see the coal mining industry closing down anytime soon. And if nothing else, it'll, it'll see, the th- see them through the rest of their working career. He's getting out of the industry, he says, because he wants to make sure he isn't left with no options when it starts to wind down. Still, he's worried about what the people he works with are going to do. It does sort of has me concerned in a sense that what the future holds, where are my coworkers going to work in 20 years time? Will there be enough work to keep them in their current jobs? Do they need training? Do they need a transition? What are they going to do in the interim? I guess there's a statistic that from the BHP closure, one third of the workers found full-time work again. One third entered into casual work and the remaining third remained unemployed. And I just sort of look at the current situation and wonder, is that similar statistic inevitable? And does it have to be? But he's quick to point out that his colleagues aren't desperate. As I've said, coal is a thriving industry in Australia, but that makes it harder for people to see the big changes coming. At the minute, it looks solid, I would say, in the sense of... I mean, coal price is incredibly high. We at my work are having a lot of trouble getting workers. And I think that's a bit of a, from what I've been told from the people I've spoken to, that's a bit of a common theme in the Hunter in general. There's just so much work on. So at the minute, it's looking quite strong. But I mean, we don't have to cast our minds back too far to remember how. Uh, cyclical the industry is. There's been downturns countless times followed by more peaks. Same again. So like, there's always going to be coal on the ground. There's no doubt about that. There's always going to be enough people to mine it. How long is there going to be a market for it is really the big question. It's, it's peaking now. Next time there's a low, I really don't know if it can come back as strong. I'm really not as confident as I would say 10 years ago. We would say now we are starting to see some movement and really the take home and and the challenge when we look at other regions is oftentimes regions don't start to get organised, get coherent as a community, start to work on the practical things that are required like attracting new jobs or investment until they hit a crisis point and that makes it much, much harder and that is the history of regional structural changes generally is it's often very late in the process when people identify that there's a challenge and then it's hard to learn the things that need to be done, implement things practically and and ensure the community's on the same page. That's Warwick Jordan, coordinator of the Hunter Jobs Alliance. Founded in late 2020, the Alliance is a coalition of union and community environment organisations formed in recognition of the changing economic landscape in the Hunter. Warwick wants the region to take advantage of opportunities that energy diversification presents, but he's acutely aware that a lot of people don't see the changes coming. First cab off the rank is recognition that there is a challenge, but also opportunities that go with that. It's very hard to get people to focus on solving a a problem or taking an opportunity unless it's recognised in the first place. And so that's step one and identifying that The Hunter as a region, we've seen economic change in the past. 
we'll see it again and we do need to tackle that and be proactive about it. And so that's really the first step. Although he does think he's getting through to people. I would say we've been observing, particularly over the last 12 months, a real shift where there is more recognition in the community that these aren't necessarily issues that are solely about climate politics or the environment or other political issues. They're issues about the economic future and the shared interests of the region. And I think it's not the whole community. There's a wide diversity of opinion out there, but we're certainly seeing that recognition. And that is absolutely making it easier for leaders to go to government and business and say, this is the type of things that we need and this is what we need to start doing. The Alliance is less interested in the big international politics of climate change, instead focusing on local workers and the needs of the community. Any kind of change in an economy, uh, whether it's positive or, or negative, is impacting people, is impacting their livelihoods, and at the end of the day is impacting their wellbeing and happiness, and that should be the critical priority. So people need to be involved in the process, and that means having a level of understanding of what's going on. Uh, my name is uh, Dr Simon Longstaff. I'm the Executive Director at the Ethics Centre. In 2016, Simon co-authored Our Energy Future an eight-point blueprint outlining a just and orderly transition away from fossil fuel. Well, when I was invited to join that group, one of the first elements to arise during the initial meetings was a recognition that although you could be very clear about the direction of the world that science was telling us we were heading in, and perhaps about some of the necessary changes that needed to be made, it was essential that the transition that would arise out of those changes be both just and orderly. Even though he's approaching the issue from a different place than Jay, Wayne and Nathan, Simon understands the fundamentals. He knows that in order to have a just transition, the basic needs of those affected must be met. So it's about looking at what are the essential requirements of a community whether they're being satisfied in the circumstances before change commences and how to make sure that after you've gone about bringing about the change, no one in the community has suffered this disproportionate disadvantage for the sake of a whole lot of other people. So you want to look, for example, very specifically at what do you need to do to preserve as far as possible, not just employment opportunities, but the access to the kinds of basic goods, the bread and butter things that people worry about, you know, Will my children have a job in the future? Can I afford health care? What about the cost of living? All of those things have to be taken into account when you make those transitions. And it was an essential component of this plan that governments, that industry, and that anyone else involved in driving it make absolute certain provision for the welfare of those who are going to be most affected by the change. Simon believes the needs of mining communities are common. They are genuine and shouldn't be taken advantage of. So I think people who seek to exploit the fears of people in the mining sector or those around it often don't really understand that what people in, in mining communities and others around them want is not so much the opportunity to go into the pit every day. What they want is the opportunity to make provision for their families, to be able to live reasonably decent lives. When people prey on fear of loss and don't actually provide any reasonable prospect of an alternative, I think they're actually manipulating people in a relatively vulnerable position. Warwick Jordan is conscious that this is a long-term issue that will play out over decades. 
this is a, a challenge that is going to be ongoing for 10, 20 years. The sky isn't falling in tomorrow, but it is a long-term challenge and we need to have institutions and capacity that reflect that and, and not be subject to political cycles or cuts and changes in funding or whatever it might be. And if we're thinking about it in regards to economic change, at the end of the day, where we need to get to is an economy that meets the world's needs as far as decarbonisation, but also meets the world's needs in terms of the goods and services that they're requiring. And so we do need to put a premium on things that are genuinely sustainable. Germany is touted as an example of what a just transition looks like. There was a concerted, decades-long effort in the country to make sure no one was left underground, as they put it. Timon Vionet is a German scientist who has worked in energy policy research for more than 20 years. For the last decade, Timon has been part of an organisation in Germany looking at climate policy and long-term energy scenarios in regions like the Hunter. Foresight, he says, is everything. Three quarter of a million of jobs just in coal mining. Right. People who, I mean, including, of course, the offices, but just coal miners and their companies, uh, 750,000 people in all of Germany. And that went down to 20,000 in uh, about 2018, when the discussion really started about we need to phase out coal for climate reasons. So basically, we've had a, a 60 years history of phasing down coal for economic reasons, for technical reasons, because mechanization, you need less people. People use gas and oil to heat their homes and all those processes. But really the number of miners declined, the dependency on coal mining as an economic factor declined massively before we started discussing phasing out coal for climate reasons. He points out a key factor is widespread community buy-in. A lot of the new renewables were owned actually by, not by big companies, not by the energy utilities, but by people at large. And especially people who you would normally not link to being, I don't know, the urban green hipsters, but uh, more like, yeah, conservative people, farmers, um, and, and they saw their own profit. There are examples of community energy projects popping up around Australia, including in the Hunter. People coming together to lease land to build local energy grids. I met some of these people on a previous episode of this podcast. But that's only part of the story. If you look at the renewables, I think, if I look back 20 years when the big support and the boom of renewables started in, in Germany, I think... I think the important thing is, is that it was considered a business opportunity. But Australia's move away from coal is piecemeal. Business is investing in green technologies. And at a state level at least, there's recognition of the opportunities. The Hunter is part of a state-led renewable energy zone. And the New South Wales Treasurer, Matt Keane, has announced 87 expressions of interest worth about $100 billion for the zone. They are potential investments in renewable energy generation, including dozens of solar, wind and battery projects. Mr Keane says the region will continue to be the energy powerhouse of New South Wales. Proposed to sit alongside the energy zone is the Renewable Energy Industrial Precinct, a concept put forward by think tank Beyond Zero Emissions and supported by private industry. A renewable energy industrial precinct is a cluster of manufacturers powered by 100% renewable energy. Now, they're located 
either within a renewable energy zone or connected to a renewable energy zone through high voltage transmission lines that have access to clean heat and renewable hydrogen production and infrastructure. And they're located in existing industrial heartlands like the Hunter, Gladstone, Bell Bay. That's Sam Meller, Hunter Engagement Leader for Beyond Zero Emissions. With over 40 expressions of interest from emerging renewable manufacturers and existing businesses looking to pivot their operations, this precinct concept is an example of private industry taking advantage of a renewable future. The Hunter look is can be the electric motor of the Australian economy and beyond zero emissions, we'd like to see the Hunter as the electric motor of the global economy. We have so much potential to build on the legacy of the energy industry that has been here and to remain a global energy hub in the zero emissions era. Sam says things like railway infrastructure, existing workforce, trade relationships and the Newcastle port are reasons why the Hunter could easily embrace renewable manufacture. So why we're focusing on manufacturing is because it accounts for 21% of Australia's emissions, but also it's an opportunity to boost our economy and future-proof our economy because there's a real push towards zero emissions goods and we really need to be looking ahead at, you know, the markets of 2030 and 2050 and start preparing for that because there's a lot of other countries that are quite ahead of us on this. For example, Sweden has already produced fossil-free steel. They've made a car, a fossil-free vehicle. But Nathan Clements argues that until there are viable alternatives to employment in the mining industry, there's unlikely to be much movement from workers. Part of the conundrum is that you have... People working in a coal mine, you're looking at a hundred and maybe twenty thousand dollars a year plus. You're asking them to change to a job in the renewable energy sector for seventy, eighty thousand dollars based on, I guess, climate morality. When what petrol is nearing two dollars a liter. Houses are almost completely unaffordable. It's just hard. And part of it is that the renewable energy sector is so new that it's just not there yet in its wages and conditions. Coal mines have been around for so long, heavily unionized. They have fought, taken action, achieved the conditions and wages that they're on. It's almost uncomparable. And so to ask coal miners to do that right now today is, is not going to be many yeses. Wayne Williams, the miner we heard from earlier, isn't convinced renewables will replace the industry anytime soon. I don't see it going away. Um, I understand, you know, renewables and stuff like that. I just don't think that we have the technology yet to, to do that. Yeah, you know, I'm all for it, but... At the moment, I think coal-fired power stations and all those sorts of things are still going to be around for a while to come. Worldwide, you know, they're still building them. I suppose it's just the uh, social pressures. You know, I think we all understand that we have to change. With a lot of input from Treasurer Matt Keane, New South Wales is making strides when it comes to the energy transition. 
that the overwhelming feedback I got from all voices in this conversation was around the lack of such leadership at a federal level and the lack of a plan to support workers in the shift away from coal. Without federal direction, there's only so much government at lower levels and the private sector can achieve. Nathan Clements worries about what's going to happen without a plan, and the industries which have dominated this region for 200 years are left to crumble. I'm not an expert in any way, but this is just my opinion, but I worry about another BHP. I see a point where if unacted upon, I suppose market forces finally do take their toll, I suppose, on the industry. I see redundancies. I see mass unemployment. I see people moving away to find other work. That's what I worry about. I worry that the future of the hunter could be different, but it could be very bad. Not where it should be. For more stories about energy transition, check out the Newcastle Herald special series, Power and the Passion, which investigates Australia's rapidly changing energy sector and what it will mean for Hunter residents, workers and the communities they love. Pick up the paper or read the stories online or in the Newcastle Herald app. That's it for this episode of Voice of Real Australia. Thank you so much for listening. Subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen, and I'll be back in a couple of weeks. If you like the podcast, please tell your friends and give us a five-star rating on Apple Podcasts. It really does help. If you'd like to share your story, email voice at ostcommunitymedia.com.au. That's voice at ost, A-U-S-T, communitymedia.com.au. You can find us on Instagram and Facebook. Or follow me on Twitter at TomMelville124. Voice of Real Australia is recorded in the studios of the Canberra Times on Nunawal Country. It's produced by Lara Corrigan and me, your host, Tom Melville. Special thanks this week go to Matthew Kelly, Chevet Prima and Heath Harrison. Our editors are Emily Sweet and Chad Watson. This is an ACM podcast. Mm-hmm.